Welcome to Women in Science, a podcast series where we interview some inspiring women who are breaking barriers in their fields and making remarkable contributions to research. We chat to them about the science they love and their unique journey as scientists. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and in this episode, we meet a researcher who's just wild about rice, UQ's Professor Melissa Fitzgerald. Her career has taken her from Australia to Asia and back, and her research has helped the rice industry and rice farmers all around the world. Welcome to another episode of Women in Science podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Professor Melissa Fitzgerald. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your background, how you got here, what your training was like, all these sort of broad strokes of your scientific career. Okay. So I started my scientific career at Sydney Uni, and I did a Bachelor of Science with honours there. And then I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to be. I knew science was part of my life, but not how. So I took a bit of time off and went to work at Melbourne University. I was a research assistant on an ARC project. And while I was there, I was doing pretty fundamental research and it wasn't floating my boat particularly. So I sort of, and I was exposed to a lot of other people there too. We were, I was in the School of Botany and we were right across the, the grass from the School of Agriculture. And I was seeing so much application coming out of the School of Agriculture, so many industry people going into there, so much research that led to outcomes. And so during that time, I understood that I wanted to do sort of sophisticated research but it had to have a direct outcome for people or industry. So then I started a PhD with that value met and I've used that value to shape every one of my career decisions since. So I started a PhD which was with a university in Melbourne and Agriculture Victoria and I worked with farmers, wheat farmers and the baking industry. And after that, I went to New South Wales Agriculture, where I was the head of a rice chemistry laboratory. I was there for seven years, and so I was based doing pretty high-level research on um, rice and consumers and f- farmers and new varieties and, and the sort of the adoption of the new variety by farmers, the acceptance by consumers, and the physiological processes that operate in the plant to lead to the grain type that a market might want. So... I was there for a while, I had my kids there, and then I was invited to go and join the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines, and there I had probably my dream job. It was fantastic. It was just a lovely job. I had my own research group. I was had a lot of international work. It was And when you work for an organisation like that with the mission of improving the well-being of rice farmers and rice consumers, that really was something I enjoyed and really spoke to that value. And then it became time to come back to Australia. I needed to get my kids into Australia, let them realise what it was like to be Australian and... And also I needed to find out what my pathway might be if to come back to Australia. So I applied for the job here and got it. And that put me into a spin because <laughs> I hadn't expected to get it. And so anyway, it took a year. I got here. I decided to take it. I mean, you can't go for the interview and then turn them down, I felt. So, <laughs> so anyway, I um, took the job and I came here in 2000, the beginning of 2012. 
Fantastic. It sounds like a very exciting career. So I think your work in the Philippines sounds absolutely fascinating. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that sort of work environment was like? What's the international rice community like in terms of representation of women as well? So I worked at the International Rice Research Institute, URI, and that's one of 14 centres around the world. It was started by Ford and Rockefeller Funding and now is under the umbrella of the Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research, so the CGIAR. And so each one of those institutes is located in an area where there's poverty and where science can improve the well-being. So this was located in Asia, which is the centre of rice consumption in the world. And but there are a lot of other countries that grow rice. So um, we, like as I said, the the mission was to improve the well-being of rice farmers and consumers. And so all the research was targeted to that. So we had a lot of engagement with rice farmers. We did a lot of work on farms. We did a lot of work in uh, understanding how to get a variety faster into farmers' fields, and and um, sort of the the social science aspects of that being does the variety perform very well in the field and then does the variety perform very well in markets? Do people like to eat it? Will people buy it? And so we have the issues of adoption and acceptance. So I probably work much more on the end of acceptance because my work is really on rice quality and value adding and looking at what goes on in the plant to supply material to the grain and how the grain uses that to make the starch, the protein, to make the things that it makes in the structures that it packs them to then have different qualities, different eating qualities and processing qualities. So that was the research. But then we we had a very big footprint around Asia and we were we also had a lot of collaboration with all the other countries that grow rice. And one of the things that Erie did well was to create networks. So we had networks for all sorts of things. And when I got there, I also created a network. So riding on the coattails of Erie, I had that credibility to create a network. And one of the things that I'd observed was that in every national program, so the national programs in Asia, just like the Department of Agriculture here, those national programs, all of them have a rice improvement component of them. And so in every one of them, the the rice breeder was the top person and I was working in rice quality. And in Erie, that was its own discipline. But in these national programs, it was a service component to the rice breeder. And interestingly, most of the rice breeders were men and most of the people doing quality were women. Hmm. And so I formed a network called the International Network for Quality Rice, which included all of the women who were doing rice quality. And it, it turned out to be a network full of women and the real benefits of that were, so we had the scientific benefits of harmonising methods, creating ISO methods, um, doing ring tests so that people could know if their instruments were working, bringing people into big collaborative projects with international universities and providing research opportunities and then providing name and getting opportunities for names on papers. And so it was really good in that way. And so how did you find bridging that divide? If there was a little bit of a gender divide in the, in the field, so to speak, did it make the fields exclusive or did you find it very easy to be inclusive? Um, for our network, we, we did find it, we were very inclusive, but we were 90% women. I was included in a lot of the other networks at Erie where I was the only woman and uh, most, I would, most of the meetings that I would go to at Erie, I would be the only woman there. The gender balance at 
the senior management level was pretty poor. And I think a lot of people still identify with that today, that you notice as a woman, as you go further in your career, there's less and less women attending the same meetings. Would you have any advice to offer for women who, say, walk into a meeting, discover that they're the only woman and, and feel excluded or, or feel intimidated in some way? It's a hard one. Mm. I, would, I think the three things that gave me traction when I was the only woman in the room was that I have I was confident. Confidence in, is a really key thing, I think. Fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Just be confident, exude confidence. But confidence comes from knowing your position on something, and so that comes from preparation. And so to go into a meeting unprepared, I think, is generally a bad thing. But to go in prepared, you can then be confident. And then I think it's really important if you're going to be presenting a position on something, think about what the other positions could be in the room so that you have some answers in your back pocket. And that comes, the ability to do that increases the more meetings you go to. Mm. But when you start up going, when you find you're the only woman in the room, you do need to show credibility. You don't need, you do need to make sure that you don't get derailed. You don't let your brain undermine you. And to fully recognise that when your brain sends chemicals or when your brain starts to express chemicals of insecurity, to really understand that that is just a biochemical reaction and recognise that it shouldn't Mm. um, limit your ability to contribute. I like that. It's a very scientific way to think about confidence. And it's almost, as you say, the as you build your preparation and your experience, you can sort of build up that, that confidence and that justification to yourself as to why you are the only woman in the room and why your opinion and expertise is wanted. Mm-hmm. So your move to from the Philippines to Australia must have been quite a big adjustment. <laughs> how did you manage that and how did you navigate that in terms of starting up new networks, starting up a new job in a new country where you hadn't been for some time? It was pretty hard. I have to say it was really hard. I already knew quite a few people in the field of um, sort of plant physiology and plant biochemistry. I already knew the people of the rice industry in Australia because I'd worked with them and I'd continued to work with them when I was overseas. And so to start up my research, I started straight into rice and got funding immediately from the rice industry. And UQ positions itself towards Asia a bit. Mm. And so Asian students were really keen to come and do rice projects in my lab. And so that was a, that was really good to kickstart research and to get papers rolling. Mm. And so you mentioned one of the attractions for you in, in terms of this field is, is looking at the big questions and doing applied research where you feel like you can answer those big questions. What advice would you offer to people who think, okay, yeah, definitely my passion or my drive seems to be more in applied research. How do I get a foot in the door? So I think you have to identify the door that you want to get the foot in. <laughs> Very important first step, yes. yes. And then it's uh, networking and, de- and developing relationships. And do you find that the skills you use in a, a purely academic setting are the same as those that you use when you're engaging with industry or are there different skill sets that you've developed for each environment? They're definitely different skill sets. When we have an idea, a research idea at university, 
the long-term view of that is conferences, publications, things like that. But if we look at it through an industry perspective that for that same research idea, the industry perspective is a product, a technology and efficiency with the bottom line of profit. Mm. And so being able to sort of take that one question and see the two dimensions of it, or the different perspectives of it, is really a skill that I had have worked on quite a lot to be able to see that perspective and to be able to translate the science. So to separate the science into scientific result and application of the science. Being able to tread that line is really useful in terms of when you're working with industry, if you can see the difference between the, the science and the application, you can navigate the patent pathway. So you can publish the science mm. but have confidentiality around the application. And so if you can see a way of publishing that science without revealing the application, that's something that I've worked a lot to try and develop. Yeah, it really sounds like the way to sort of straddle the best of both worlds. Is there any... I mean, to me, as, as somebody who doesn't straddle both worlds, I think that sounds very, very challenging. Is there any sort of particular training you can do for that? Or is that really just experience surrounding yourself by other people and other role models who do seem to, to fulfil both criteria? I think it's, tra- it's experience, a lot of it's experience. But I think there is a way to think about starting to train yourself for it, is learning how to, is thinking about your idea and developing, say, a 30-second pitch of your idea of how you would do that to an industry partner or at the top of a, like an elevator pitch Mm. and to structure that so that you have the application or you know what you want from an industry partner and what benefit and value you can bring to that industry partner. Often we get caught up in the the nitty-gritty and the details and and we forget that 30-second pitch of what am I actually trying to do and and what could be the application of this. Mm. And I think maybe it comes from your experience working in sort of starting out in a bit more blue sky research that you're able to do both. Do you see that early period of your career as formative or do you see it as more it was really just a stepping stone to get to where I needed to get to? I definitely see that it was formative. There's, I, I definitely feel that I like to do sort of high level research but I like to use the the, the nice toys and um, <laughs> don't do, we all? Yeah, <laughs> but for, and to have out, outcomes, application, and outcome from that. So I'm I'm absolutely like the the physiology and biochemistry is my background, plant mm. physiology and plant biochemistry, and so applying that to outcomes and application. So what I would really love to do is sit here and talk about rice dishes um, because that's definitely a passion of mine as well. But I think what I'll do is move on to our sort of quick fire round questions. And the first question I'm going to ask you is, can you tell us which woman or women have really been the biggest influence in your life? Okay, I've got a few. So Marie Curie is one. Frida Kahlo is another. I really like the way she portrays social justice through art. Mm. Pat O'Shane is another one. She's Indigenous and really articulate about Indigenous rights. Adrienne Clark was the head of school in botany when I was there. She's a bit of a firebrand woman and I think from her I realised that you can do it, mm. that there's a place for women and you can get there and, and be supported. And also she was very supportive of other women so it sounds like quite an array of, of different characters yeah. there and that maybe you can almost pull the best character trait out of, of each one of these women. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and that's maybe an important message that there is no 
one personality that gets you far. It's about learning what works and about drawing the successful parts of those around you. Absolutely. And so I guess thinking back to to maybe your earlier experiences in both science and industry, do you think that the challenges for women now are lesser or greater than they were then or are they just is it just different? I think it may be I think that some of the challenges are certainly the same, mm. but also I think it's a little bit different. I think it's a little different in that we now have a lot more role models like how when have we seen two women vying for the premiership. Yeah. When have we seen that? It's incredible and fantastic. And so we have role models like that. We have female deans. We have a female vice chancellor. And so we have some really important role models. But I still think that the the elephant in the room is children. Mm. And uh, babies are easier to manage, I think, than school-aged children. And so, so what do you think we can do better as a society to support women who do have children and who may be trying to get back into work after a period of maternity leave? Well, the thing that happened for me was absolutely, it, that was transformational for me. My, when I had my first child, my supervisor at the time was a man, but he understood that I wanted to come back to work. So it was in 2000. He put the internet in my house and set me up on work at home. So I had to, I took one day of, I took six weeks of maternity leave. Then I took for the next, I had a, another three weeks, so 15 days. I took one day a week, so 15 weeks. Then I took three days of work at home and one day at work. And so I had one day of leave a week, but over those four days of working at home, I got four days of work done Mm. or three days of working at home with a fourth day of leave. I got work done. So we worked together for what I would achieve and I did. And then when I came back to work and had to go around to meetings, he put a car seat in the car. That's amazing. Mm. I think that's the incredible support and sort of ally behaviour that you need. I think so too. And so I've done that for all of my female staff who've had babies too now. So now you're setting them all up for 2020 where everyone's working at home. Yes. You're ahead of the time. And that's interesting, isn't it? Mm. We've found that we can work at home and be quite as productive. Mm. And maybe that will be the change that comes from this pandemic, a shift in our traditional view of work. Of work, yeah. And that, you know, if you are working at home, you can work effectively, even if you're juggling small children or even Mm. if you're juggling homeschooling. yeah. That's a little bit more difficult. I could imagine. <laughs> yep, yep. And and I mean that's been the tough. That's been the flip side of the pandemic. That there has yes. been a lot of burden on women. But I think hopefully it will change how we think about work and I, structured work. I believe so, and I really hope so too. So I guess thinking forward, then, what would be the biggest piece of advice you could offer to the next generation of women in science? Learn negotiation skills. I've got three pieces of advice, really. That is totally okay. (laughs) So learn negotiation skills and be able to negotiate your position. Mm -hmm. Back to the biochemistry, when your brain undergoes some biochemical changes and starts sending you messages of uh, insecurity, recognise them as chemicals that are probably around adrenaline, fight and flight, and they're sending you to fly, but just dissolve them. And fight. And fight and recognise that it's just an ancient adrenaline pathway and don't let it undermine you. 
And the third piece of evidence is when you get into a situation where you may have to defend your position, prepare some compromise space. Mm. So work out what the space is where you're prepared to compromise and come up with four, three or four options of alternative patterns or alternatives that are acceptable to you within your compromise space. These are some incredible pieces of advice. I'm glad you gave us all three. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you too. Well, that's it for this episode of Women in Science. In our next episode, we'll catch up with internationally recognised physicist, Professor Helena Rubenstein-Dunlop. This podcast was produced by Dr. Marlous Decker, Dr. Marina Fortes, Belinda McDougall and Matt Taylor. Technical production was by Daniel Seed. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short and thanks for listening.